Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And this week we have the second of two conversations with Mark Lewis. And this one kind of builds on last week's, but it's it's um, it's a little bit different because we have another guest, David Benjamin Blower, who did um, a podcast with us a while back called Relinquishing Control. Um, so we've kind of got two guests for the price of one, as it were. And yeah, I think this time I kind of don't really want to say too much about the conversation because uh, it contains a bit of an element of surprise, I think. The, the, there's a perspective on the situation with uh, Native American culture in relation to the mainstream culture. And it's a bit of a surprising, well, the, the perspective that Mark gives right at the end is is uh, probably not what you'd expect him to say. So um, I'm going to leave that to uh, to reveal itself and get straight on to the conversation, other than to say um, that there's another little nugget to look out for, and that is... Um, yeah, Mark's key piece of advice that it gives to me and David about what we can do to bring our own um, culture back into the wild. So, yeah, look out for those those two main points. All right, we'll we'll now get on with the conversation with Mark Lewis and David Benjamin Blower. I've got so many thoughts and questions. But so, so one thing I wanted to ask was, to, um, have uh, do you have um, an unbroken cultural history and pattern of um, growing, harvesting, processing, eating food together in an intergenerational way? Or um, did you ever have to kind of work hard to resist um, losing that, that pattern of life? Did you have to be very intentional about that? Or was it ever lost and then recovered again? Or has it remained very much just at the heart of, of who you are and how you, how you do things? Okay, so you've got um, these groups of related people. Um, Yavapai are the ones right around here. Uh, Paipai are my family over in California. There's Wallapai and there's Havasupai. Maybe you've heard of some of these guys. The Havasupai are at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Uh, of the groups, the Havasupai and the Paipai never broke, always kept. Uh, very conservative people. My grandfather, uh, uh, I'm mixed, so uh, that was kind of tough for him um, because here he's he's got grandkids that are not completely, you know, pie-pie, and he, was, he always hated that, that idea. Very, very conservative. Don't as a general rule, don't include whites or blacks or, or uh, even uh, natives of other groups that speak languages that are not related to the Pai family, right? Uh, so it was tough for him uh, having us growing up, um, but we learned it. We learned everything. Um, the Wallapai and the Yavapai, the Yavapai have fared worse of anybody. Um, they are closest into the cities and they lost everything. I mean, except for the fact that the blood ran through them, they lost everything. Language, uh, culture, using the wild plants, even how to do their own agriculture, just 
just trying to survive, just trying to make it to now. And they did it. They did it. I'm getting goosebumps. They made it. So now they use Pai Pai people. They use Havasupai people to teach them about the plants and the language and the culture and all of that stuff because they have casino money, right? Pai Pai people don't have any casino money. The Havasupai have a little bit of tourism money. The Wallapai are the ones that are really raking in the bucks. <laughs> they have, uh, if you've seen the Grand Canyon, there is a U-shaped platform that hangs out over the, the canyon. Have you seen this thing? Have you heard of it? No, no, I haven't. It's got a plexiglass floor. So you're actually like floating above the Grand Canyon. And uh, they entered into the original contracts where, with a Korean man, and the Korean man tried to screw them over, so they, they just seized it. So now they own it. And all the money for all the tourism, all of the lodges, all of the restaurants, all of the toll road, everything is theirs. Uh, they are making their own classes, learning you know, from their elders that are still there. Uh, it looked like they were going to go the way of the Yavapai with uh, forgetting everything, but they haven't. The Pai people the, and the Hankap, uh, the Mojave people and the Klitsan, the human people, uh, very conservative people. So the language has hung on and the culture uh, for some of them coming back, but for others never lost. Uh, right now, my wife is Navajo, uh, just because they have so many of them. <laughs> There's like 500,000 Navajo. There's a lot of Navajo. It seems like they're everywhere. That's what we say. Uh, you know, you, you look under the desk. Oh, there's a Navajo. Oh, look, there's one over there. <laughs> they're all over the place. <laughs> Too many Navajos. And then the Autumn people. The Autumn people are the people... Uh, this particular spot where I'm standing, uh, this was Autumn land. Um, who is that New Zealand guy? He's a director. And at the Grammys, he the first thing he did was talk about, we're standing on the land of the Tongva. And, the, and he listed all the tribes that were from Los Angeles before. And to us, this is Autumn land right here. Um, even though uh, Altam people have not, quote, owned, unquote, this land for the last, it actually only goes back to the 1970s. But anyway, um, to when, when we are foraging somewhere, we always know whose land this is, who, who gave us the permission to use this. So David, I would say that with, at least with Pai Pai people, um, I mean, because little kids are all still fluent in Pai Pai. You learn Pai Pai before you learn anything. Uh, don't go to school until they're, you know, six or seven or eight years old. And before that, everything is done at home. You're, you're speaking Pai Pai. You don't learn Spanish, right, until later. Uh, very few Pai Pai people have learned English. Um, when we have the the language meetups uh the different tribes get together almost every year now 
uh, and we have, and it's all uh, centered around language. And we have these uh, big language camps, as it were. And all you do is you you hear people moving in out. Uh, you hear pai pai, you hear walapai, havasupai, you hear yavapai, uh, English, Spanish. Everybody is uh, speaking whatever is most comfortable for them, right? And all the little kids are still speaking pai pai. They're still speaking havasupai. Uh, Navajo folks, um, they don't come to our language things, but um, they talk about themselves losing the language. And I think uh, people that are probably less than about 10 years old, Navajo, they got some work to do. Um, they are actually being overrun by the larger culture. Uh, most of the Pueblos are like that too. Um, but not us, <laughs> not yet. So, did that answer the question at all? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Just going on. No, no, no. I mean, I guess describing a spectrum of um, different experiences and responses to um, how you hold on to um, the the wisdom of memory and resist being homogenized into the into the um the broader culture i mean to to compare that with your your vision of england is beautiful that we have um hundreds and hundreds of different dialects from um from village to town and in a, in a way that's true that there is this um you know you, you can know roughly where you are by the by the twang of the accent um and yet the, the um that that bears so little um uh, influence on, on on people's that you know how they interact with the stuffs of life it, the, the the idea that food comes from anywhere but a supply chain is a pretty marginal um idea um so but being able to sort of awaken that um that tribal and local and um uh, connected to the to the place that you're in kind of um imagination that's um that, that would be a beautiful thing to be able to do but we, we are so homogenized here that it's hard to imagine i don't know <laughs> i england it may be i mean england's pretty small I, i'm not even sure if england is as big as arizona um so maybe you are supposed to be all one it seems like you could rally around that. Um, you're not even part of of Europe anymore. <laughs> you're 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 floating away. <laughs> you guys are you're out there. But I mean, like the history the history of England, it it was always all these different little things, and it never came to be one big thing until maybe what after after World War Two, wasn't it like everybody was, I mean, you would travel and you would notice the difference, wouldn't you? I suppose so. I, I suppose the, um, uh, as time went on, history in, in this country becomes less local and rootsy and more um, 
uh, more about you know one king after another king or um you know what the british empire was doing at this point and then that point so uh, over time kind of um rootsy folk history diminishes and then the you know the history of uh, rulers in their towers um prevails uh, but but i mean you're right it's it's a case of intentionally um looking and digging and resuscitating um that kind of history and that kind of story and and um i suppose awakening the value of it for people yeah i don't think people feel like they have a story you know they feel like spectators in a story or recipients of of you know the goods that story gives them but they don't feel like it's their story so you have to tell them that somebody's ripping off their story yeah yeah somebody's taken their story that's the i mean this is this is the dirt you know where grandpa's buried right here and this is this this, these are the stories right here this is where we come from this is what is in our blood and in our bones different from over there and that doesn't mean over there is bad we can learn a lot from over there but that doesn't mean we have to lose over here so but I guess you guys are going to have to do it. Quit being so lazy. Miles is working. We work. We work uh, processing food. We work pretty much from about three a.m. in the morning until midnight at night. I mean, it's just nonstop. You're doing something. Always checking on something, making sure that it'll end up having a shelf life that you can then use and keep. Because you got to make it through the year. Right, you gotta make it through the year. Um, well, it's the necessity. Maybe driving. that's part of it. yeah, yeah. Necessity driving it, and in the absence of necessity, you have to find another reason to drive it. You know? Well, when your society collapses, yeah, <laughs> maybe well, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the necessity, the the, the necessity that is is just that you watch everything collapsing before it does collapse and um, you kind of see the necessity that, that this is really going in a bad direction. So that, um, that is stirring up the, the, the level of inquiry that says, you know, what the hell could we do to turn this around? What could we do to, to begin again? And the thing is, like, I, th I think what we have um, in, in our recent history, um, we did have people and and the and there are still a few you know people in little places in in england who've never left their village now that used to be quite a common thing you know people that had never been to the nearest town which is only 10 miles away that used to be you know even even like 30 or 40 years ago there'd be a lot of people in some of these villages who had never moved you know and i remember first hearing about that you think Crikey, that is so backwards. How, how unbelievable! But now, um, I, I don't think like that at all. And I think that one of the interesting things with this this pandemic, the lockdown, is people not being able to move. Uh, you know, I, I went to I went to a um, an event a while back, and there's various different talks and so on. One one person did this talk, was, did, which was. I forget what it was even called, but her point was, if we're going to change anything, we have to not move, as in 
not move house. And she, uh, she had a right to say that because she's from the East End of London and her family going back several generations are from the East End of London. And she's working there doing community development work there and she doesn't intend to move. So like she's got her roots down in that locality in that place. Uh, but it's a huge issue. It's very difficult to say our story when I don't come from here and we might move again in five years time because of, you know, you've been offered a job in London or a job here or a job there and no one even lives near their family and things like that. So, you know, it, it is, it is, it is a real dilemma in terms of people having no connection to, to any place, you know, not, not even like the place where they were born is not where their parents were born. And, you know, I don't, we are so rootless, Mark. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty painful. And even, and even if we're going to go back first, you're all from Britain. You're all from those islands. Not really, not really. So if you go back a few hundred years, we've been invaded so many times. Yeah, we can't say that we go back longer than, you know, the most, okay, we haven't been invaded since William the Conqueror, but that's, that's, that's a thousand years ago. Prior to that, we were invaded by the Anglo-Saxons. Prior to that, we were invaded by the Romans. Prior to that, we were invaded by the Celts. <laughs> we are, um, we're a shuffle, a shuffle deck of cards, you know. Yeah, David, you're in Birmingham. That's right, yeah, yeah. That's kind of an industrial place. Yes, or it was, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the birthplace oh, wow. of the Industrial Revolution thereabouts. You're tired of that? <laughs> yeah, I think we sort of used up all that sort of energy and, um, uh, yeah, not so much of that kind of thing happens here anymore. The next thing will be the foraging capital of England. Well, that's what so. we need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're going to have to, uh, it sounds like you're going to have to enlist a whole bunch of people and, and especially kids at school. Yeah. Have, them have some gardens and uh, have some wild food that way and take them on little trips. Uh, you know, to, there must be a river around there somewhere. <laughs> There's a little river, a little trickle goes through Birmingham. It's the River Ray. Yeah. And you have to head a little bit out of the centre for it to feel like a pleasant place to be. Um, but it's, um, yeah, we've we got a river. I'm pretty, yeah. I'm, I'm very much the beginning, uh, the, uh, the beginning with, with foraging. Um, so I've got to know Miles over the last... Oh, I don't know. Well, I've known him three or four years. Um, we coincide at certain places um, and learn little bits and pieces from him. But I'm, but I'm not a forager, you know. I've, uh, I've only uh, just got uh, put my toe in here and there. Not for lack of the desire, it's but um, it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to do. Yeah. So. Well, this, the psychology of it's interesting, isn't it? Because it you do it and you find you get to know a plant and what you can do with it. And you immediately think, Oh, this is easy. I can do this all the time. Um, but then you don't, um, you don't, unless you, you're very intentional about it. Huh. I, I did. I never had that experience. It was, it was always one thing. One would lead to another and to another and to another. Um, did you learn it from your, um, from your parents? My grandpa, um, Pretty much, uh, we couldn't have candy, which, by the way, my very favorite candy bar in the whole world is Fry's Turkish Delight. It comes in a purple 
squarish sort of right and Grandpa, Grandpa would not let us have any candy until we did the things he wanted us to do. <laughs> so, so we learned a lot, um, and would go out into the desert with nothing but a knife, not even water, and uh, be expected to be able to make a way. Um, so you learn, you learn stuff. I mean, it seems to me, I learned a lot from grandpa but i also learned a lot from kids other kids you know mm -hmm. uh somehow that was easier uh if the kid didn't know a whole lot grandpa knew a whole lot and uh, so you could get inundated like, like a fire hose um but other kids only knew a little bit a little bit more than me that seemed to be the the thing that would be the easiest to learn from is another kid who knew just a little bit more than me learn that and then move on and and you know up the ladder kind of thing um until these, you... these are like your friends your peers like the people other kids that you would hang out with who were your age um yeah yeah just other community people who were also learning it and we had, there were different expectations in your house, you know, bring home this, do this kind of deal. Um, but when you're out there, uh, I don't know, you're just really focused on what it is that's in front of you, um, whether it is enough or whether it is hard or any of that stuff. It, it's, you get, at least I used to get into this frame of mind of, of oh here's this now i know you can do something with it what <laughs> right and bit by bit i mean we've got right here in arizona there's 2500 different things uh, that you could go get uh, not counting medicinal stuff and um, in baja it's it's interesting that that's the other thing a lot of the stuff was brought by Europeans and nobody gives a crap. <laughs> the, the anthropologists, I remember when I was in college and I took an anthropologist down there and, and he was like, oh, well, that was brought by the Europeans. I'm like, okay, <laughs> good to know, right? That's nice. And he says, well, uh, you, you, just the pure stuff, just the pure native stuff. And I said, well, why do I care about that? What I care about is the stuff that I'm able to use and how do I use it and where it came from, you know, 500 years ago is nice, but, but it's here now. And so am I, and this is the thing that's in front of me. Um, so, I mean, you guys, Miles, you're talking about, okay, you got the Romans did this thing and the Celts did this thing and the, and the Saxons did this thing. And well, it's all Brit British now. <laughs> I mean, it's all there now. Yeah, we're here right? now. Yeah, and you're there. Is, you're... Yeah. And yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's all, it's, it's all fair game and it's all equal and good if it keeps you alive. If you, if you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, you know, I really don't want that filet mignon. I'm so sick of filet mignon. I think I'd rather have this, <laughs> this uh, beautiful 
whatever, you know, if you don't have that luxury, um, you take the stuff that you've got in front of you and, and you say thank you, <laughs> right? <laughs> say thank you to that, that earth that made that possible. Um, how, how much of your, how much of what you eat is foraged, Mark? Right now it's around three quarters. Um, we were up into the 90 percentage range, but we, we've decided we want to go to restaurants and try stuff. <laughs> and uh, I do buy stuff at the farmer's market. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baked goods at the farmer's market, but there's other stuff too. And uh, they're not things we eat at home. And so, you know, we don't eat a lot of bread at home. Not a lot of bread. Um, so we, a sandwich is now like a really exotic sort of thing, you know, because it's, it's, it's got that bread and, and it's just a, a completely different taste than a lot of the stuff that we spend most of our time eating at home. Um, we're kind of the poster children for, they always tell us here in the States that if you want to be healthy, you should, and you go to the grocery store, you should always stay along the walls where the produce and the meat and the, you know, the unprocessed is. And don't go to the middle of the store because that's where all of the, you know, rice-a-roni and all the packaged stuff that it sounds like a science experiment instead of food. Uh, that's where all of that's located. And our house... We do use a lot of Tupperware. You know Tupperware? Uh-huh. Yeah, we use, <laughs> we use a lot of Tupperware. So I was told by someone at the farmer's market that that's bad because it's plastic and I should use glass. And I, I said, well, if you want to pay the money to swap out all of our Tupperware, <laughs> we will be happy to do that. But um, we make, on Sundays we will, uh, usually sit for several hours and just process stuff that's going into the Tupperware in the freezer and the refrigerator. We put the dates on there and we put a little masking tape and we write down the name of what the food is. And then during the week, um, we just pull. So we, we want something quick to eat. We just pull it and then cook it. Um, uh, what's... Um with carbohydrate type foods, are they, is it harder to um, find that kind of thing, um, foraging? Which kind? Carbohydrates, you know, like, um, um, besides kind of um, green plant type stuff. Um, There's a ton of stuff. <laughs> There's a ton of stuff that is just out there, like pods and berries and seeds and greens and roots and all of, all of these different things. Um, and some of those you want to process so that they'll have more shelf life. Um, and so you can either shelf life them to powder or you can shelf life them to freezing or to refrigeration or juice or whatever, um, so that they'll last a lot longer. Uh, we've got a lot of freezers and uh, that's something that, you know, people didn't used to have. Uh, yeah. So we use them. And do you, plant, do you plant things and, and, and um, grow things? Do you do, you do a, degree of, uh, a degree of farming or anything like that? Or, or is it all foraged? 
Okay, so uh, well, I wanted to make sure I understood the question because when we are out foraging, we will also uh, cast seeds. Right. We will, also, we will also, when we pull up roots, we'll take little pieces off of them and we'll plant them back. Mm. Uh, that's what we mean by assisted agriculture. So that I know that when I come back to that spot, that stuff's gonna be there. It might not be next season, it might be the season after. Some things take like two years, but um, there are whole areas uh, on the reservation where you'll find different kinds of plants that clearly somebody started there. Um, and we have places in the valley where we've done that quite a bit. We also have uh, in our yard, we've got the gardens, and then uh, I've got a farm that is over in Eastern Phoenix, that's an acre and a half uh, farm in that. And then we're looking at buying a property up at um, Camp Verde, which is north of here, where the river goes through, where we would plant different stuff because it's a lot cooler up there and wetter. And um, so, yeah, we're planting. Oh, and then I'm helping with these gardens over at the, ba there's a Baptist church and they've got um, their parishioners that farm, have little farm plots. We're talking, you know, six foot by four foot. Um, but there's also a bunch of people from the neighborhood, which is predominantly Latino and Mayan. None of them speak English. <laughs> and we're planting stuff there. Um, over at the Botanical Garden, I helped with a, a garden over there. So there's different, yeah, we're planting stuff. Um, Tepary beans, or I should have brought tepary beans. See, I brought some stuff. <laughs> um, I don't know if you were able to see that at all. Um, but tepary beans are getting ready to finish one crop and, and at the end of June, and then they'll start, we'll plant, replant. So anyway, David, what, what I would do, if I were you, uh, uh -huh. use your... Uh, noviceness, your beginnerness to your advantage and find some people who know more than you and go out with them. Get them, get people that know just a little more than you to help you. Yeah. So, I mean, when I look at the map of England, it doesn't seem like Kent is very far from Birmingham. <laughs> but I'm sure it is. <laughs> it's probably, it's probably at least a good drive. Um, it is in the English mind. Yeah. So you can't you can't count on miles all the time. But there've got to be some people. Yeah, I know. Um, I, that, yeah, I, I can think of people. Well, I, I can certainly think of one person in Birmingham who's, um, um, well, who will certainly know more than I do. Um, and he'll probably know people who know more than he does as well. And then you just you just get out there and you start doing it. And if it, I mean, seems to me that we, uh, it, it was never expected that you would like completely master anything. So, hey, I haven't learned, I haven't finished learning how to do this one over here yet. No, <laughs> it was, okay, well, you've learned how to do that. That's nice. But now we're doing this one. 
So, you know, focus, <laughs> pay attention, learn what you can and keep going that way. Um, it all adds up surprisingly fast, surprisingly fast. It's, it's like with anything that you give your attention to. Um, the more of your attention that you put on it, the quicker and, and larger the, you know, database that you end up with, I guess. Um, and the easier stuff becomes, and then it's more fun, mm. right? It's more fun if you know what you're doing kind of thing. Um, if everything is a question, then it's just like, like when I was in Japan, okay, so they, <laughs> they would take me to these karaoke bars, karaoke, and um, the, the words are written up on the screen, okay? And they would say, just sing, it's right there. <laughs> Have you ever seen Japanese, <laughs> written Japanese? It's this combination of three different kinds of characters, three different systems of characters that are all together. And just read it. Oh, great. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I can't read that. Um, and then when you try to learn it, it's just like one problem after another. You, you, uh, you really weighed in. But I can remember the day when um, suddenly all around me, I started to be able to understand people which was really freaky <laughs> because you spend a lot of time not knowing what people are saying. And then suddenly you're able to attend to details that maybe were there. Well, obviously they were there, but you weren't somehow able to pay attention to them. Foraging seems to me a lot like that. You kind of, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to know to make sense out of anything that's in front of you. But once you reach a certain level, suddenly, and I mean suddenly, you're like, oh, that, that's so easy. That's, why didn't I get that, you know, kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, you, if any hobby, anything that you do, you do music, right? Uh-huh. I, I like that soil thing, by the way. I have a copy of that. Um, so... Um, there must be like musical instruments and stuff that you had to learn. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. few, I've never mastered anything, but I've uh, got the hang of a few things. Well, see, I can't, I can't even read music. I don't know. I can, I can sing. If somebody sings something, I can copy it. Uh, you know, almost exactly what they do, I can do. But I don't know how I do that. I don't know any of that. And I, so then when it comes time to learn a musical instrument, I'm completely lost because it seems to me everybody starts with musical notation. And I'm, you know, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know what that mess is. Um, foraging's like that. There's a system there right, right in front of you. And it's easy if you just, you know, spend the time. Um, and once you do spend the time, whole other worlds open up, right? So it's just another musical instrument you got to learn. Mm -hmm. It's easy. There's a kind of um, easy. exciting. Miles, what do you think? 
Yeah, it's easy when, because yeah, it's just like you get the scent of something. You're like a pig chasing a truffle. You, 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 that's it. Once you've, once you've got that motivation, um, it all opens up. Yeah. That's it. You just, you just start out. You, you gotta be like a kid searching for buried treasure and then, mm. uh, then you find it. Yeah. There's a lot of treasure out there. Come on, palm tree. Can you see them? I can see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you see the white flowers? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. So what we will do, um, my wife and I will drive around the neighborhoods looking for people that are trimming or otherwise cutting different parts of their trees. And it's always this stuff. They say, oh, well, that stuff's so messy because the, you know, those purple things will fall out of them and make a mess on the sidewalk. And I say, yes, those are fruit. <laughs> those are fruit, that mess. All of that mess is food. I mean, it's easy to get several hundred pounds of the fruit. Yeah, there's a lot of it. Oh boy. Yeah, the city I know probably this weekend because I can hear the, they're, they're cutting something else back there. So probably this weekend, they will be cutting a lot of those off of there because they're so unsightly and make such a mess. And uh, I'll be here at the farmer's market and I'll grab those up <laughs> and take them home cool. and then start processing them, getting them. Because you can make sugar, you can make jelly, you can make uh, wine, all kinds of stuff you can make out of those fruit. Um, but these right here, the flowers, you, you pick them, uh, you put them in salads, like, oh boy, look at all of that. Wow, that's spectacular. Getting hungry now. Everywhere I look, <laughs> there's food. So, the thing the thing Birmingham probably has trees. Birmingham's a very one. green city. Yeah, there's a lot of trees in Birmingham. There are or are not? Oh no, there are, yeah. There's a misconception about Birmingham that it's all just concrete, and it's not true at all. It's a very, very leafy and green Oh, city, loads of trees. If I look out my window towards the uh, the city centre, there's a sort of sea of ants, lots of trees in between in between me and the city centre. Okay, so some of them must have food on them. Mm, this is what I need to know. Okay, well, Miles, you would know better than me. Well, you got chestnuts for sure, but I should I should put in a little a, a fun detail of my biography um, here. But it's just that I was born in the city where David is. I was born in Birmingham. So my, my first experience of plants and green spaces and things like that were in, in David's vicinity. I think, I think we had chestnuts. That's all I can remember because we left when I was six. But um, yeah, there are, there are some beautiful green spaces there. Well, there's obviously something infectious about encountering somebody who's doing what they love and talking about what they love and just beginning to share the edges of of um of that knowledge and that lifestyle um i guess i've got you know all sorts of thoughts about how a um yeah how different um different people's historical and cultural experience either kind of opens things up or closes things down um and this feeling of being a, um, I mean, you began, Mark, by talking about how 
people who are being sort of just chased off their lands, chased off their out of their spaces and their lives, people that the dominant culture uh, pushes aside. There's this um, um, openness and this fertility in in that position. Um, and then there's the thing of being a, a sort of um, uh, people whose colonial history and imperial history um, is sort of taking you to a place where you're very alienated from the land you live on. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the, you know, that journey back. What does it, how, do, um, what does it mean to be a, a people in sort of rehabilitation from um, imperial past, um, that kind of thing? Um, my, but yeah. my wife will love that one. <laughs> hey, we're in rehabilitation from an imperial past. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's um. I don't know. It just seems to me that uh, whether you've got the the rehabilitation thing or you've got just you've decided you're going to do something that your parents aren't doing. You've decided that you're going to make your way and you're going to be different from everybody else. Those are avenues that are just as ripe for for taking on a new hobby like foraging as anything else right mm -hmm. the, re the youthful, youthful rebellion uh, or the um, I'm gonna make this the thing that you know makes my name for me. both of those would seem to me to be possible ways to get into this you don't have to you don't have to have you know your the man's foot on your neck <laughs> I mean it definitely helps but um, it, it's just the idea of getting people to take ownership. These are my plants. This is my land. This dirt is the dirt where my grandparents lived, even if it's all of England and not, you know, this tiny little thing right under my foot. Um, you just say to yourself, hey, <laughs> this is ours. This is ours. And uh, we let other people have it or we we just neglected it, but we're not doing that anymore. Um, those seem to me perfectly good ways to get into this um, mm. without having to have a whole institutional, you know, thing coming up against you. Um, mm. it, it, Miles has already done the hard work for England. Thank you, Miles. <laughs> of of making the value of these things become once again apparent. So now somebody has got to say, thank you, Miles, get out of the way. <laughs> thank you for what you've done, uh, but you are now useless. We're taking it from here kind of thing. And even though he will continue to do and he'll teach the very people that are, that are saying, you know, get out of the way. Uh, it's going to have to be another group of people who will actually grab a hold of this and and make it theirs. You know, um, I think every culture works like that. You've got the people. It seems like kids always gravitate to their grandparents, and they want to 
learn from their grandparents and they want to do what their grandparents did. And that's probably because their grandparents took care of them. <laughs> their parents were busy trying to make a life, you know, um, and they were the grandparents. And we see the conservative, you know, liberal, conservative liberal, this, this seesaw kind of thing. Maybe that's what's coming now. You're everything falling apart. So it's got to be put back together. It's not going to be the people that lived when it was falling apart. It's going to be the other people. Don't have, they don't feel like they have anything and still grab it. And you got to let them grab it. <laughs> you got to like right now, the, the, in England, the conservation organizations. if those organizations did not exist uh, before Miles came along, um, a lot of things would not have been preserved. But the way that they look at things, now it's clear, is not the way forward. And so Miles came along and said, why can't we harvest these things? The only way to keep them, you know, in, in front, front and center in the hearts and minds of people is if we engage the people with them. And they aren't ready for that. Well, too bad, conservation organizations. You have to step out of the way so Miles can do, Miles can do his work. And then Miles is like, well, you know, I, I got the chefs to uh, finally pay attention and give things their worth, their due. Uh, but maybe it's going to have to be somebody new who comes along and says, Miles, very nice. Get out of the effing way. <laughs> I, this is now what, what we're going to do with them. And we're going we're gonna to eat them. And we're not going to spend all of our money at the grocery store. And we're not going to worry about food that's imported that uh, doesn't come anymore because oil costs too much or something. Um, it may have to be a completely different group. <laughs> um, well, just to but, say, Mark, that, that zine that we've just put out, it's, it's, we've had an amazing response and we've, we've put 4,000 out already and another 2,000 going out this week and they've mostly gone to food banks and, and uh, people working with homeless people and, you know, um, that kind of demographic. So maybe, you know, maybe some of those guys are going to come and start a revolution because... Yeah, you'll have to be gracious, <laughs> gracious statesmen and stand back and let them do, and, and probably they will do things and you'll just shake your head, oh, that is the screwiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And and yet they'll be they'll be carrying it forward which is really what you wanted yeah yeah right um when i look around at the people at the farmers market the majority of them who are interested are all caucasians <laughs> they're all white <laughs> and i could go well it's not what i was going for you know but uh, the point is they're gonna carry something forward here that's what they're doing so I have to stand back. <laughs> I have to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, there's plenty of other people I can go, you know, preach to about this stuff. And I am. And uh, in fact, with the native kids, oh, man, you ought to see these native kids now. They look at me like I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> and they, they take for granted all the things that I th thought, you know, would be lost and were, was so worried that it wouldn't go forward and they are doing more and different and other with that, right? 
So I just have to, you know, hey, it's on, <laughs> keep going. Um, right? Yeah. Uh, they got to do it. They have to make it their own. They have to, they have to do it themselves. And yeah. Uh, and no one's and, in charge. Mark. That's the thing, isn't it? No one's in charge. Right. It's not something that you can be in charge of. Moving center. It's got to move. Um, those kids on Sunday, I, I, last week we had press, um, and really all those people did was smash a bunch of store windows and steal stuff and weren't local people. Um, but on Sunday, those were high school kids from around here. Those were, you know, I might not know them personally, but they were from here. They're from this neighborhood. And so, you know. Let them do it. Let them let them change stuff. Uh, they're the ones that have to carry it all forward. stories all about travel uh, um, until they end up where they end up. So uh, 
but but we have the name crops that obviously originated with the Hopi. We got them from the Hopi. The Hopi word for bean is mori. Morik, mori, right? The, the other names for, for beans don't even match. They don't even come close, you know? So there's a whole bunch of cultural things that we obviously, you know, our clan got here in Phoenix before they, they and why did they move? Why did they go down to Baja? They were fleeing being murdered. <laughs> These are people that were thrown out. My ancestors were people who were thrown out by Yavapai people. And it wasn't until um, about, I think it was like 1973 when we had that reconciliation get together. I mean, it, you know, people have long memories, <laughs> long, long memories. So, the other groups, the other Indians that are here, the other native peoples really just got here yesterday as far as we're concerned. And then think about the Spaniards, that's, that's only been 150 years. And then think about the Americans, the Americans are what we call United States people. Uh, so uh, that's yesterday. I wanna know about, um the the kind of the food culture among Pai Pai people. I mean, I've been introduced to you as of a week as, as a forager and, and mm -hmm. um, just had like a little window into what you do. Um, so I'm interested in um, going back generations um, among the Pai Pai people. Is... Um, what was the food, has the food culture been? Has it been very much about foraging um, more than agriculture and crops or hunting or what, what kind of um, balance has there been historically? Um, and why have you landed so much on foraging? The answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, okay. So Pai Pai people have been down in Baja uh, Norte and kind of been jumped over as far as development goes. So here's, here's Southern California, Rip in Southern California, just up the road, right? But there's this boundary line, okay? And US people have a weird, a weird relationship with Mexico, such that Mexico seems to most I'll say white people, but just think mainstream people, okay? Uh, it doesn't matter what race they are. If they're mainstream people, they think of, of Mexico as uh, lawless and dangerous and backward and primitive and a place you go for vacation where you can, if you're a woman, you can take your top off and run all over the place. And, and, and of course, the people down in Mexico are like, what in the hell? <laughs> because people from Mexico consider themselves heirs, and I'm talking about mainstream Mexico. They consider themselves heirs to European civilization. They were here before the United States. Half of their, their territory was stolen by the United States. There's all this stuff bubbling up. Uh, and they, but, but the result of all of this has meant that a lot of North Americans, that's what down in, in Mexico, that's what they call 
US people, North Americans. Uh, North Americans have left major parts of Mexico alone. So even though back in the early 1900s, there was an attempt by a particular man named, uh, I think it's Warner, I think his name was Warner, to steal Baja California from Mexico, he failed. Uh, and so Mexico went back into the, the deep freeze. So Mexico uh, doesn't really consider Baja much of anything because there's no water. So they've left it mostly alone. And only now are things, you know, ports developing and stuff like that. So Mexico left it alone and the United States left it alone. And that allowed Pai Pai people air room to breathe for the last couple hundred years. So essentially the culture, other than the fact that it's becoming a little more crowded in Baja because more people are moving from Mexico because for example, in the early 1900s, the Yaqui people uh, were persecuted by Mexico and so they fled to Baja. Uh, Mexico in the 19, uh, early 19, excuse me, early 1900s up through about the 1950s actually had to beg countries to send people to Baja as uh, homesteaders to try and fill up the land. So the land has become a little more crowded, but essentially Pai Pai people, uh, Ipai, Tipai, Kumiai, all these people that are down in Baja have had a chance to come into the modern world hanging on to most of the culture. All of them, uh, the way that people, the food culture, uh, the way that people relate to the cosmos, all of that stuff is intact down in Baja for all these different groups. And as soon as you cross the line over into La Linea, cross the line up into California, the people have been under siege since the 1500s up there. And here in Arizona, uh, the pretty much uh, the Mexicans, when they were here, um, they were kind of thin on the ground, so they weren't able to dominate and uh, control the cultures of the native people. So a lot of the native people managed to hang on to their stuff right up until the Americans get here in uh, the 1860s or so. So what you've got is a situation where, unlike most of North America, most of the people in Baja and in far Southern Arizona have kept their cultures, have kept the, the, everything all the way up until now uh, and have continued to evolve. Uh, Pai Pai people are modern people. They just are different from modern people, say, who watch SpongeBob SquarePants every day uh, up in California. Uh, the, the tribes that have managed to survive in the United States, in, in California and in Arizona, actually ask us to come up and teach them how to forage, teach them what foods are good. Uh, because Pai Pai and Yavapai language are so close together, we've had Pai Pai people come up and teach Yavapai people their language. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting situation.
be like cultural ambassadors. And uh, whenever we have, uh, every year we've got a, a, a U, it's called a human, uh, not human like H-U-M-A-N, it's human, Y-U-M-A-N. The, all these peoples that are related to the Pai Pai, uh, those are the human peoples. And uh, that's an anthropological term. But anyway, Usually they're held either in California or in uh, Arizona because those people, uh, these tribes up here have casinos and money and Pai Pai people don't. <laughs> Pai Pai people are still extremely poor. People, my, my grandfather used to starve. Every, every spring people used to starve because that's the time when there's no food in Baja. That's the time when there's nothing to forage. And if you've you crowded onto a smaller piece of land and you can't do your entire seasonal round, which is the case now, uh, can't get to the coast, can't get uh, certain areas like in wine country, uh, can't do those. So for up back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there were people that would starve in the spring, uh, just have no food. but. What we have now is a situation where the Northern brothers and sisters have all the money and they don't have their culture, but the Southern brothers and sisters do. And when we get together, that's the, that's the, uh, the dynamic, the, the, the trade as it were. Um, so now you've got a situation where the, the different tribes down South are, there's a company called Sempra. It's a, a huge energy company. And they wanted to have um, uh, windmills, wind turbines up in California. But California has very stringent environmental rules. And so they couldn't build them. So they went down to Baja and they asked us. And so we now host their windmills, their wind turbines. And every single person, now think about this, you're going from zero to what I'm getting ready to tell you. Every single person, whether they're a, a infant, a tiny child or a grown up, gets $2,500 a month from Sempra. This has really changed the ball game. <laughs> this is, we have, we have solar, we have, um, we have electricity, we have food, <laughs> we have all kinds of stuff. Um, so now you've got, okay, and then up here in, in uh, California and in Arizona, the people have been relearning their culture and are rejoining essentially. So what we now have is a foraging culture with money. <laughs> We have both the foraging and the money. We didn't have all of this before. Um, but the, the food culture now we're, for example, last year, uh, last October, I taught at a food festival in Baja. You can't imagine what this is like because in Baja, the, the mainstream culture thought that all the Indians were dead. <laughs> they even said that. <laughs> we thought you were dead. <laughs> Thanks, I'm doing okay. Um, 
I taught them about native food uh, that they didn't know were existed as ingredients, right? So these are chefs in Baja at, at extremely high-end resorts and restaurants. And, and I, the, I don't think they had a lot of trouble taking it from this space. But then when I invited my relatives up who look extremely Indian, <laughs> they, they, they are, you know, do you know what Oroboso is? Oroboso? No. Women, any, any upstanding woman of, if she's Pai Pai, uh, regardless of what background she came from, once she becomes Pai Pai, you have to wear a shawl, right? It, it's it's sort of like a um, the Muslim women with the with the uh, what do they call it hijab shador I don't remember um, but you know the the thing that covers up your face mm -hmm. so pipe my women have to wear those men for example like right now I don't have a cowboy hat on okay. Oh, if you're a man, if you're Pai Pai and you're a man, you're wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> That's all there is to it. You're wearing a cowboy hat all the time. So um, here's all these, these guys dressed in flannel shirts and dungarees. Do you know dungarees? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, dungarees. Here's, and here's all these women with dresses that, that, are, that look like tablecloths because they got flowers on them and stuff. And, uh, and they got that abosos. They, they've got the, the shawls up there. And so they start talking in Pai Pai, uh, and I translate. And these chefs, I could, I could just see the, the shock on their faces. Like, how do these little weirdos, <laughs> country bumpkins, know about this stuff, right? Uh, last year was the very first time that I was invited. So I, I used my, my platform <laughs> to, who are actually just coming from down the road, you know, just a few kilometers down the road to be at this festival and nobody knows they exist. That, that's, in California, um, people know that the, the natives exist now because they own banks and they own shopping malls and they own, because what they did was that the history of California, you'd have to understand, you've got, first you've got people, you know, running around naked and happy and stuff. And uh, <laughs> a little more complicated, but anyway. Um, and then the Spaniards come and you have the mission times, but then the Mexicans throw out all of the missionaries right and mexico rules and then the the americans come and they say mexicans you are dogs uh and they treat them like garbage and they're shocked and the indians are like even lower than that right okay so that by the 1900s the native people have to buy their own land back okay and they do it they did that back in the 50s and 60s. They bought their own land. And then the state of California came and said, you're unfairly competing with the, the 
other cultures here. So we're going to seize your land. So they seize all the land. So the, the Indians had to buy it back a second time. <laughs> and they did it. <laughs> and then they started having casinos and they took all that money and they pumped it into buying all kinds of land and all kinds of properties. And now they are a big player politically in California, right? They even go to Washington and mess with stuff, you know? In the United States, politics is all about who pays who kind of thing. Well, the California tribes are on that level now. Um, so, this, year, this past year was sort of like a wake-up call for Baja, for the people of Baja. Uh, these Indians are here and they don't need you anymore, okay? <laughs> okay, Mexico, they don't need you. So the native people now in Baja are, we're at a crossroads kind of where we have never been before. Um, we've got money and we've, we can kind of write our own ticket now. We have our land, right? The, the government was required back in the, the 70s and then again in the 90s to uh, identify what are called ejidos. Uh, and so in Baja, the whole area is carved up into areas that are owned by different groups, different co-ops, uh, the tribes, uh, the, the Russian Jews that came, um, they're just, it's, it's all, there isn't any, any like public land anymore that isn't, uh, well, there's, there's one national park now, but, um, but the native people can basically, I mean, we, we're, we're talking to China. <laughs> if, if we're going to have industry, we might as well control it ourselves. We've got jojoba. You know jojoba? I think I told you about, okay, so jojoba is a plant that has a nut and the nut has a liquid wax in it, which is the liquid wax that replaced sperm whale oil. Uh, it's high uh, uh, smoke point, extremely high smoke point. So it's, it has industrial uses and it has culinary uses and it has medical uses and cosmetic uses and a whole bunch of things. We have, we now have farms on our land down there. That's acres and acres and acres of, you know, hectares, 10,000 hectares of uh, jojoba that we're selling to companies up in San Diego. And, uh, but we can do business with other people. So this is where we've come. And if, if you know about the tribes here in the United States, um, the ones that have been able to wrest control from the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, of their healthcare, of their uh, economic development, of their, they are all starting to surge forward. There's a, there's a group of tribes called the CERT. The, it's either Committee or Community of Econo <coughs> Economic Resource Tribes. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and uh, they have each one on their land, they have coal or they have uranium or they have the search. Those guys are pretty much calling the shots now to the federal government with, with contracts and things like that. People are used to the idea of native peoples as victims. And yeah, I was going to say, this is not sounding like victims very much. Right. It's sounding more like victory. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it's highly unlikely that most of the tribes were victims at first. Because it was a bunch of pilgrims, it was a bunch of boat people that came over here <laughs> and had to have help to get through the first few winters, right? It was, it was intact cultures on the East Coast. And then when the Spaniards get over on the West Coast, it's the same thing. They, they didn't know their rear ends from a hole in the ground. And it, it was people helping them survive, right? And then, you know, disease and, and having, you know, your head blown off, that, that'll really stop you from helping somebody when somebody blows your head off with a gun. Um, it's just not conducive to cooperation. <laughs> so, so we're now at a point where uh, things in, in the United States are just chaos right now. I don't know how else to put it. Um, I don't know why white people are so afraid because there's still so much the majority of everything here. Everything is, I mean, you go anywhere, it's just nonstop white people, white, 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 everywhere white. <laughs> why they're afraid that they're losing stuff, but that, I, that's the only way that I can make sense out of Trump's becoming president is that white people are afraid. Um, they're afraid they're losing something. And, and maybe, maybe Barack Obama really stirred that up and oh my God, there's a, there's an, I won't say the word, but there's an African-American there in charge of stuff. And we're just gonna be overrun and, and all of this kind of stuff. That's what you hear white people say. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're, you're everything, you're, you're everything here the default setting in the United States is white people. <laughs> it really is. Everything is, is like that. And um, California is the, the one place, well, maybe Hawaii, um, the one place in the United States where it, it actually looks different because more than half of the people aren't white. Uh, but let's face it, California is like 80 million different kinds of people from everywhere on the planet. And uh, I, I picture the rest of the United States going in that route, uh, going that direction. And what that means for Native people is we are now players again. We can determine our lives. We can, uh, our kids go to college, right? Our kids become lawyers, our kids, uh, do all the things that were impossible before. When, when you're constantly knocking somebody's, knocking the ground out from under somebody, which is what happened in, in California for almost all the tribes, all the way from south to north. It was this constant taking of things so that there was never any, any ground under your feet. Can I, can I just 
bring something out, like the fact that there is this um, resurgence, as it were, and and you know, you guys are finding this strength, and it just goes back to what what you said earlier about being, you know, being a people versus not knowing what it means to be a people, because you know, it's just that we. we we don't have anything like that. We, we can't say, well, you know, what we have to do, if, if we want to have any kind of semblance of the sort of identity and collective action that you're talking about there, we have to sort of invent some kind of communal living that we all go and sign up to and then we will fall out with each other after two years because we well, but you, but you do. You, you do have, you, you guys are so much the same <laughs> over there. And it doesn't matter if the people are from the West Indies or, or from India, though in England, you guys are like one big thing. <laughs> You're just all the same. You got Bhangra music, you got, you got uh, fish and chips, and <laughs> you are just one thing there. Not a lot of, there's not a lot of solidarity that, that comes out of the fact that we all eat fish and chips. It's not a lot of yeah, we all just sit down and have a, a, a delicious fish and chip meal and agree on all oh, those French people are sure stupid. You can't you can't do that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, I don't think it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just um, quite that easy. It's well, it's it's conforming to a, a common uh, behavior pattern, I guess, but I'm not sure it's. Uh, it's very much to do with the heart, which... Um, so is it in England, you're, you're not quite sure where the future is supposed to be and that's what people are upset and worried about? Because uh, California is what the United States is going to become. There's no question in my mind. That's where it's going. Uh, supposedly there's going to be uh, what they call a majority minority in the United States. Uh, within the next 10 years. And what that means is there won't be any quote race, these races, um, there won't be one race that's more numerous and more everything than any of the others. And so in California, what you see is these coalitions of groups. Some of them are race-based and some of them are political and some of them are are economic and stuff, but they, they all have to have to jockey together to get anything done. So it's kind of it's kind of like Israel in, in the Knesset or something. Everybody's duking it out. <laughs> right. Um, but in the end, um, there isn't any one uh, racial group that's like running the show in California. It's everybody together. And uh, that's where the United States will go. And when it does, we are, you know, the native peoples are just one more. We stand the equal of all the others. Um, and in California, uh, and in a lot of places, uh, the tribes have been very quietly uh, with the land that, you know, has been, quote, quote, given, unquote, to them, um, they have been, have been parlaying that into uh, economic resources as well. So that the majority of the tribes, I think if Canada too, uh, 
you don't quite see it yet in Mexico or in the rest of Latin America, but Mexico is coming up pretty quick. Uh, what you're seeing is groups of, of tribal native people who were never subsumed, were never assimilated, uh, who are setting up chop their own thing. And uh, I, I don't see the country fragmenting or anything. In England, you guys are still like primarily Angles and Saxons and stuff. I mean, you're, you're not, uh, the, the quote minority unquote population that some of your population is afraid of. But, but if you are think- not, Are not so many, right? Yeah. But, but Mark, if you think about it, what's, what's happened to us is we've, we've had the, the um, I mean, I mentioned this last week, but like the, the repeated waves of, of invasion that I think starts about, I think it starts about 5,000 years ago in the, in, the, in the Neolithic era. So we would have had, we would have had hunter-gatherer cultures here then that would have had some sort of tribal identity and some really strong connection to land and, and, and so on. But that has just been, it's like, it's like plowing a field, you know, we've been plowed and plowed and plowed and plowed and plowed. So the, the, the sense of there being like an indigenous culture here that that is not very much being shaped by power structures that have come in with the with the different um waves of invasion it's you know if if i didn't think it was in our dna which i do and if i didn't think it was still in the soil to to draw out from us what's in our dna so therefore we can be people of land anyway in spite of all that but but nevertheless we have no heritage to draw on other than our DNA and to look to uh, other parts of the, 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 the planet where people have, have got their land-based culture and, and we can learn from them. So, you know, I guess um, I, what I'm trying to, to discuss really is the effectiveness of, of knocking something down repeatedly for several thousand years. Eventually, you know, you, you, you do break it, you know, and, and I think, um, yeah, the, the first waves of, of, of settlement, um, it would be really interesting if we had, you know, I think people probably are researching it, like the Mesolithic era and transition, you know, there probably is archaeological evidence there, maybe there's linguistic evidence, but you know, it's far, far back, 5,000 years, it's far, far back to be LSE the traces of what our ancestors would have been when they were still living, um, you know, in a, in a more tribal way and not under the government of, of, of the sort of new um, Neolithic setup. You know, I mean, people here romanticize our um, stone circles and so on, but they forget that that was, that was Neolithic. They, these were, these were um, hierarchical uh, Neolithic societies with, you know, they were colonizers. The, the, the stone circles weren't put up by, you know, native people with, with, with the kind of um, culture that, that was present in the, in the Mesolithic era and, and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, like, we're, um, we're, we're a bit barren when it comes to, you know, the land-based culture, essentially. Uh, not you guys know about the Welsh language, right? 
Well, my mother spoke Welsh till she was six, and 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 uh, sorry, my m mother didn't speak English until she was six. She's 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 Welsh and grew okay. up in Welsh speaking. Yeah. Well, the Welsh language is back. Yeah. It pretty much disappeared, didn't it? For most of England, it pretty much it was pushed to the west side, and almost disappeared, right? And it's back. Hebrew disappeared and it's back. There are people in Korea that have taken, the, it's like half of the downtown and they've turned it in, it used to be a river and it was completely a, a concrete culvert and they turned it into a river again and now, now they, they forage there. Anything cultural can be brought back. Right? It's true. It's true, but it doesn't make us a people. You know, you, you're, you guys are a people and we're not. You can't do everything all at once. <laughs> you gotta start somewhere. Well, no, I'm not, being, I'm not being gloomy. But come on, David, what do you think? I suppose I see our situation as being, um, I mean, we, we carry in our story as white British people, white British men in particular, um, power, a history of power. Um, we've sort of, um, we carry in our historical story a sort of location, socially and geographically, um, at the centre of empire. And I think if you live at the centre of empire, then you get, you get fed on, um, on, you know, bread and spectacles, bread and gladiators. You, you, you become a kind of domesticated bunch of people. Um, you, you, don't, you don't really have to think about where your food comes from anymore because it's all farmed by other peoples and other places and shipped in. Um, so life just, uh, you know, the, the stuff of life ends up, um, you, you don't actually have any connection to the processes of it. It's, it's all done by um, people with less power in your on the on the margins of your domain and shipped in and then there's this um pathos in the plot arc of empire um when when it loses its power uh and it, it, all all of the peoples that it colonized are now also internalized uh, and all this kind of thing um and the you know the people who were identified themselves with the name at the center of that empire with the people who you know wore the badge of that empire who started it or whatever um they find that they've got that they've lost all of their um nativity you know their their um their own story they were so busy sucking the marrow out of everybody else's stories that they don't they don't have one of their own anymore they're just you know um so I mean, but what you're saying, Mark, is kind of a heartening thought that perhaps after that humbling void of, um, of identity and culture and story and connectedness to land and body and place and so on, perhaps you can find the little shoots and um, um, resuscitate these old things, you know, if, if you've grieved and relinquished your desire for everybody else's story um perhaps you can recover a, 
um, a sense of of your own story and uh, and that kind of thing. I suppose that's kind of how I see the situation. And I think the anxiety, the dysfunction in this country, also the dysfunction in in um, Amer- in the USA among white Americans, I guess, um, is to do with that anxiety at the at the end of your you know of the plot arc of your imperial power no one knows people get anxious what we're going to do when there's no power and you don't want to grieve the loss of power that's given up you want to um well you'll go crazy you know trying to scrape a bit of power where you can you know not let the thing go yeah well yavapai people for them to accept help from pai pai people their language and with their ability to identify plants and to forage and how to take care of things and how to garden and all of that. And it was really tough for them. They, you could see the, the kind of bowing down <laughs> because the Paipai people were thrown out by the Yavapai people. My, my family was thrown out. Uh, they were called witches and, and it was either run or be killed, right? Um, so to have to then accept help from those people for the thing that you consider your identity is tough, but they did it. They've done it. And, uh, and the other thing here in the US, I'm just thinking about, I mean, the United States created white people they created black people, they created yellow people, and there were no white people. There were Italians and there were, were, you know, all these different countries from Europe and some were better than others and all that. And, and they turned that mess into a race, white people. And the slaves that came over from Africa, they weren't black people you know, from Gabon, or they were from Guinea, or they were, they were all these different tribes and, and races. And, and uh, I mean, when you, when you talk to Native people, race really means language. Uh, but anyway, so, but there were all these different people and they were turned into Black people in the United States. Asian people from all these different countries, they're, they never thought of themselves as Asian until they got to the United States and then they became Asian people, right? And the same with American Indians. No, most old people, American Indian old people won't even say American Indian. They just talk about the different tribes, right? It's America, it's the United States that turned everybody into these races. So it's not like races have been around a long time, right? It's just a tool that people are using to say they're different from somebody else. And you don't need a race to do that. I mean, because like, if you, there are six, just so you know, there are six uh, clans of Pai Pai people. And we all talk about the other clans like they're psychotic Martians or something because you always grab a hold of anything you can to differentiate yourself from this other group of people. That's how it works. So 
I don't know. In England, you guys are, like I said, I mean, fish and chips, man. <laughs> you're just, the, you're all the same. <laughs> when, when, when I look over there, I just go, God, they're all like the same thing. Um, the popular culture, it's shared by all the kids. Even the skinheads like to use the popular culture of the ones from the from um, oh god it, somewhere around around London there's an area that's like almost entirely uh, immigrants and people from the West Indies and and they're all paying attention to each other they're all using each other's stuff you it's just like okay there's there's probably nobody in your country that isn't nominally Christian there's no way to get away from it it's everywhere. Every reference in the in the culture, old or new, you guys, and I've said this to people in the United States, I said, you guys are Christian. He says, no, we're Jewish. And I said, no, you are Christian. You, <laughs> every, everything, every touchstone of culture that, that you think is important and, and, and forms you know, the structure of your day, that's all Christian stuff. You just don't realize that's where it came from, right? It's, it's overwhelmingly there. You guys are so much the same in England in every possible way. If skin color is all it takes to differ, I mean, come on. This, <laughs> it's like, you're, you're in the United States, you go from state to state and everything's the same and everybody's doing the same stuff and everybody and i said you know when i was a kid and i first came here it wasn't like that if you were in one part of the country it was very different from other parts of the country uh, the the way it's different between the u.s and mexico right now it's that's how it used to be but the but the culture that you share the radio the tv the internet uh, those are the things that are homogenizing you. Well, why can't you grab a hold of, of foraging and use that to homogenize yourselves? Mm. And, well, and some people do, but, but in, I mean, um, cons um, a homogenizing top-down consumer culture is a, you know, it's a drug. There's a, um, have you heard of mimetic theory? In, um, so well, the anthropologist, Anthropologist René Girard talks about how human beings are mimetic. We want something because somebody else wants something. Um, and that's how, you know, consumer capitalism works. And so our, if, if the shared attributes we have are more uh, because of the, um, you know, the tax that we're buying or consuming or, you know, um, the manufactured culture that's been being down to us. If that, when that outweighs the um, the shared historical narratives, linguistic quirks, um, folk songs, and tales and sayings, um, then then um, then you lose your sense of oh I don't know your 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 ability to resonate deeply together and imagine new things together, and I think that's partly the issue. But I mean I'm. I'm hopeful of the, the possibility of, of altering that, but I, th I think that is part of our, uh, part of what ails us. 
So you haven't quite settled on what the what the culture is supposed to be. Oh well, no, you never do, do you? I mean, that's just a constant discussion. There you go. Okay. It's all it's all organic. But this the thing is, when you're um, it's it's the question of of how deeply wedded you are to the dominant culture, um, and I suppose um, why it's ex exciting and fascinating for me to listen um, to uh, you know to the visions and, and lives and histories of people who've historically been on the margins of the dominant culture or, or uh, in one way or another is because these people have something that's very difficult for my people to have um, because because we're so wedded to the dominant culture we are the dominant culture that it's um we lose um uh, we struggle to recover a shared sense of of um of folk culture yeah you just need a center you just need a center. You just you got a fire. You got a fire in the middle of your group of people. There's your center, right? My grandpa told me that uh, one of the reasons he was teaching us all this stuff was because he, you will always know who you are. So no, no matter where you go, you don't have to worry about what those other people are doing. You can do what they do. You can learn from them. You can celebrate what they're doing, but you don't have to be that. You got your center. You know where you you stand, right? So he knew he knew that that was that would be enough to get us, you know, through kind of. And uh, he told me that uh, in the United States, I would have to be a hundred times better than anybody to be considered equal. And when I got to university, I realized I was like a thousand times better than anybody. So, so <laughs> I didn't need to worry about, you know, what that, and I could, I could relax and learn the stuff that, that they, you know, everybody else had. And uh, you just got to have a center. You just got to. I think it's, I think we're getting somewhere now. This is this is really good. I mean, I mean, I say to my kids, Mark, like, well, we're non-industrial. We're gonna we're gonna judge things on that basis. Okay. So that's a start, you know. Yeah. We're non-industrial. We're gonna do things with our hands. We're gonna engage with 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 living systems, and we're not gonna expect a laboratory <laughs> or a factory to to uh, predominantly shape our. Well, why, why would you want to? I mean, it's nice once in a while to go and like, it's like, okay, I don't know how to cook Thai food, okay? And I like the taste of Thai food, but I don't have to worry. I, I don't, that doesn't mean I should feel weird or, or be angry at the lady who has the Thai restaurant, which is, is called Wild Tiger. It's really yummy. Anyway, she, <laughs> she, she makes all kinds of stuff. There's no way I am ever going to be able to make. Does, does that mean I enjoy it any less? Do I feel threatened? Do I, when I'm there, do I not try something because it's not something I could make or it's not something I tried before? Of course not. That's the whole reason I go is to enjoy what she's doing. And then I go home and I say, oh boy, that was really, I wonder if I could take this foraged food and do something like that, 
right? And of course it doesn't turn out anywhere near that. But then when she tastes it, she goes, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and, and that kind of back and forth in our neighborhood, because uh, the majority of people in our neighborhood are, are either native or they're uh, Latino or they're some kind of immigrant. And uh, so we, that's why we do those dinners, right? And everybody is just trying everybody else's stuff out um, seems like that would be a real easy thing to do in England. Just go forward with that. Um, who comes to your, who comes to your dinners, Mark? Tell me about how they work. Oh, okay. So, um, I, I didn't send you, I'll send you some, um, some of the menus. Um, cause I thought I did, but I guess I didn't. Um, the, uh, the neighborhood people, um, uh, the kids, uh, and the adults, we said, well, you know, um, you want to try this stuff and you want to see what it tastes like and see if you like it. Because as soon as they start to like it, then they want to know how to do it, right? And doing it usually means cooking it, but then if you tell them, well, you can just go get the stuff, you know, you, you, you don't have to rely on me to get the stuff for you. Uh, then they're interested in foraging. And so this is how it's gone. Uh, it's been the, probably the, in my estimation, the only successful way to spread the idea of the foraging uh, has been to get them interested in eating it. Uh, and it's just a matter of teaching them what is related to the things that they already eat for flavors and for, you know, chemistry and stuff like that. And then they'll go try stuff. Uh, so the, the people who are coming are just my neighbors, just regular people. Uh, they're not chefs. We have invited chefs. Uh, the chefs are sort of blown away uh, that there are all these ingredients. They can't believe there's all these ingredients that they don't know anything about. Uh, the dinners are, uh, we, we've gone uh, real, how can I say, it's fake green, okay? Um, we had a garbage problem. We had so many people coming and they would, they would need paper plates and they would need all this kind of stuff. And at first we were trying to provide that. It was costing a lot of money. And I said, okay, look, you just got to bring your own plates and you got to carry them home and wash them. We just don't, we don't have, we, we can't afford all this stuff and we don't have anywhere to put that garbage. There's too much garbage when you get 200 people, right? 200 people eating food. Uh, and then the other thing was- Sorry, had, hang, hang on a minute, can I stop you there to clarify? So this yeah. is your weekly meal and- No, no, we do it six times a year. Oh, six times a year, okay. Because it's, it's, big, a, like 200 it's a big people meal, it's a big, big meal. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a couple hundred people show up. Um, and uh, we have pushed some of the cooking onto other people to make that a little easier. Uh, the scary part for us is still the bathroom situation. Um, people laugh when we say, yeah, you get 200 people in just three bathrooms. It's, <laughs> this is not, this is not a, a recipe for success. Uh, but we're working that out. Uh, just the logistics of handling a crowd, right? Uh, and then you've got these, the people have made the food and they will sit and dish it out and talk to people, you know, about the food. Uh, some of them I've helped them 
they didn't forage it, but they cooked it or they didn't know how to cook it. So I showed them, you know, this, this is just works just like amaranth works just like callaloo. You know what callaloo is? No. In the, in the, in the uh, Caribbean, almost all the islands have the, have the uh, history of using the amaranth greens that they call callaloo. And, and as soon as I show it to them, they go, well, that's callaloo. And I say, well, yeah. <laughs> so then, then they know how to cook it, right? Well, they don't need me. But if it's something that they don't know what it is, I have to show them you know, how you cook it and stuff. So um, everybody fills up their plate. It's, it's like a big smorgasbord. It's a big several tables of people dishing out their food. And, and we always center it around a giant salad. And the giant salad is whatever the greens and flowers that are available during that season. Uh, and people, uh, we were getting ready to do the first one where we were, we were going to allow photography because everybody says that they just got to take pictures of these big salads because they're so weird and pretty and all these things. The salad is, is as big as a table. I mean, I just, I go out and I forage and other people forage and we fill that table up with beautiful flowers, edible flowers and beautiful greens that have been washed and, and just, you know, chop it all up. And then there's, uh, they go to a different table for uh, if they want to put dressing on there or they want to put other stuff like fruit or something on their salad, you know, so, um, but the, it, it's, it draws a crowd, I tell you. People want to want to eat all of these different things because they basically get to try a few mouthfuls and they don't have to feel so afraid because obviously this is supposed to be food. He's not gonna try and kill everybody, right? Um, it, it's, uh, it's, as I think about it, it's some of my favorite memories with my neighbors are things related to getting ready for the, these dinners and dinners and cleaning up after the dinners. And everybody takes food home. There's never any left leftovers. Um, they now take all their dishes home. They have coolers. Everybody comes prepared and they, they bring blankets so they can sit on the tiny little green. We have a, a small green part of our yard and the rest of it's gardens. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's the most successful thing I've managed to do with forest food has been these dinners. Where, um, where do they happen, Mark? Do they happen, uh, you're not having 200 people in your garden, are you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's exactly where, and the, we were getting ready to do one at a, I have a farm, um, which is an acre and a half, which would have been really easy. That was going to be the one, and then COVID hit. Uh, you know, the the it, that was going to be in February, and uh, so that was. I mean, that would have been just amazing. Uh, but yeah, we've we've always done them in the yard. Uh, Realize that our backyard is actually three backyards. My neighbors and I bashed out the walls of our backyards. There are. Uh, they were cinder blocks, you know, the walls, 10 foot tall cinder block walls, and we just bashed out the walls. Um, so there's like a, I don't know if you guys have this, uh, you know, Kool-Aid. 
we don't have you know the drink Kool Aid. We know we know the phrase. Yeah. He's been drinking the Kool Aid, but we don't actually have Kool Aid here. Um, anyway, there's a, a TV commercial where this big pitcher, uh, pitcher like you pour water out of of Kool Aid, uh, bashes through a wall. <laughs> That's what our walls look like. They <laughs> they got a big hole in them. Where, where we bashed out the, okay. So we're able to use the three, it's about 8,000 square feet uh, for, the, for the party is what we've been using. But now with an acre and a half, that's, that's you know, a nice piece of space. That would have been a real good party, but anyway, yeah. So the next one after COVID in the fall, that for sure will be at the farm. And that'll be, that'll be way easier except for the bathroom situation, which will become even worse. So <laughs> we're, gonna have to, we're gonna have to work that out. Um, I don't wanna get those portable toilets, but we may have to. Um, Can you tell us I, the story of, of how the, you began doing it? Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I guess 2005, might've been 2006, in August, uh, my wife and I would invite neighbors over, just 10 or 15 people, uh, for what we called the cactathon. Cacti, right? Cactus, cactathon. Uh, every, every course of the meal was made out of some kind of cactus thing. Okay? And that was forage stuff. And um, it, was, it became very popular. Let's just put it that way. Um, so we decided to have more than one in a year. And then they got bigger and bigger and more people inviting, oh, can I just invite my, my brother-in-law? Can I just invite, right? can I bring my kids? I said, sure. And they show up with 16 kids. It's, it's like, it just sort of expanded to six per year. Uh, and then to handle the, as you get more people, you need more food. Uh, so I started having people help me, right? People that were interested started helping. And some of them make just mainstream food like jello or cake or whatever. And some of them want something foraged. And in that case, I show them, you know, I pick something out for them that they think they can do. Uh, and that's how it's developed. I mean, it's, it, it started as a very simple thing. Um, I've been doing from the very beginning, I think I told Miles about the panna cotta. Didn't I tell you about the panna cotta? Yeah, that's one of my favorites um, because nobody knew what panna cotta was. Uh, I started making panna cotta out of cactus and then putting syrups from different kinds of cactus fruit on top of that, and then putting candy made from cactus fruit on top of that. And it became this, like everyone, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, look at that. And it's all made out of cactus, everything's cactus. And uh, so yeah, the panna cotta, uh, the different things with uh, the cheese tea. Have you heard of cheese tea? Two of an Englishman's favorite things, but no, I haven't. You don't, you don't get cheese tea? Okay, there's a guy in, uh, it's either Taiwan or Hong Kong. Anyway, he invented boba tea. You know boba tea? 
No. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. This is one of those, the primitive native person is looking at you guys like, what kind of a backwater are these guys living in? Okay. The boba tea. Okay. Boba tea has been around now for 20 years. Um, it's the tapioca. Oh, sorry, we don't know what that is, man. It's the, you know the tapioca drinks? You know those drinks that have little tapioca balls in them? No? Like bubble tea, you mean? Bubble it's tea. It's exactly bubble tea. Oh, Bubble tea. Oh, okay. So you know bubble tea. Is that the name? Okay. Oh, it's kind cool. of like a bum bag. You, you didn't know what I was talking about with the... I, I still don't know. Okay. Ah. All right. So bubble tea. All right. The guy who invented that. He decided to do a thing where he would use cream cheese. Okay. So he, he imagine all of the flavors of bubble tea, with or without the tapioca and the other stuff down in the bottom. But so all those delicious normal flavors like corn and and green tea and red bean, you know, Asian flavors, right? And he floats on the top of it, liquefied cream cheese. And then he creates a special cup so that when you tip it at a 45 degree angle, it mixes the two. So you get flavors in your swallow. Okay. My God, that stuff is good. So it's a, it's a cream cheese that's been sweetened and salted both. Okay. So I found out that they were doing this over in, it, I think it might've been Hong Kong, but it, probably Taiwan, because I think that's where he's originally from. And, um, and I thought, well, those flavors are, Americans would think those flavors are so bizarre, but I can top that. <laughs> I can do, I can do prickly pear cactus and I can do wild rose and I can do gray thorn. Gray thorn is the plant that we have here that's related to your sea buckthorn. Mm. Okay. And these are flavors that are so exotic to Americans that they will, they'll be floored. Okay. And I'll put this cream cheese on there. And will I use just regular cream cheese from the store? No. I got a friend who has a goat farm. So he makes the, what he calls quark, which is a liquefied cream cheese. And I get him to make enough quark to put on top of my, my flavors, my three flavors. And people were like, oh my God, this is so good. What is this? This is crazy, right? Cheese tea is what the man who invented it calls it. It's an unfortunate name um, because people imagine all kinds of terrible, <laughs> terrible things, but you should try it. Just get some, get, get a, a beverage that you like. Okay. Uh, if you wanted to do rose hip tea, that, that'd be a good one. Um, or even Earl Grey, you could do like an Earl Grey tea. It's gotta be cold. Okay. And then get some cream cheese and a little bit of salt. Um, I would use sea salt cause it's, it's better than, uh, uh, it, it melts better than the stuff that iodized salt, okay? Um, and a little bit of sweetener. So you could use sugar, you could use uh, agave, you could use, you know, whatever your sweetener would be. And whip it, whip it like it's whipped cream. 
okay? And then put that on top of there. And then make sure, when you're at the pub, do you make sure that you tip your beer so you get some foam and some? Or is that American thing? I generally try and minimize the foam, but yeah. Oh, no, no. You want a flavor of foam and of beer together. That's the, okay. So with your cheese tea, you want some of your cheese and you want some of your drink at the same time. It's amazing. It's really good. This guy's a, a genius. I mean, he comes up with boba tea and then he comes up with cheese tea. What next? <laughs> but anyway. Maybe that's enough. <laughs> well, tell us who, who comes to your, who's the crowd? Who's making most, up that crowd? Most of the people are just neighbors. So native families, Mexican families. Uh, in our, our neighborhood, we have some people who are cops. Do you know what a cops are? They're uh, from Egypt. They're Christians from Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Coptic. Yeah, right. cops. They come. Uh, we've got mixed race families that are like half Vietnamese, half African American. We've got, we've got. I mean, it's just our our area of Scottsdale is considered rather poor. <laughs> we're we're not the rich people. We're in the southern end of the city. And uh, so you can get a bigger house for less money. And, and uh, it's just, it, but what we've done over the years, have we, we've kind of turned it into a neighborhood where everybody knows everybody. When we first got there, nobody knew anybody. And we went from house to house and we gave people trees to plant in their yard, which they thought was weird. And, but slowly, 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 we know each other and we, um, uh, their kids on Thursdays, their kids in the evening will come over. It's our house would be a safe house. So, and they, they want to eat pizza and stuff. They don't want this foraged crap. <laughs> they, they want pizza and ice cream and stuff like that. I've managed to, you know, edge some things in there. Uh, but, but they're very, mainstream culture kind of kids uh, who just happen to like some stuff now that is they know people went out and got this or Mr. Lewis can show us out in his yard the plant that this came from kind of deal. Uh, so they're not especially like weird hillbillies or um, you know strange hippie children or something. <laughs> These are just regular people who yeah. come to this dinner. That's what we're trying to do with our, with our um, zine and so on, Marcus, yeah. to reach, reach uh, non-hippies non and non- Well, you got this guy, you got him to take his kid out and, and they got the fritter and they, you had a fritter and what else did you have? David? Oh, we, we've eaten all kinds of things. We did, yes, yeah, so we did elderflower fritters yeah. one day. Then we had um, um, stinging nettle um, omelette yeah. the next day. Then we had um, salad made of dandelion and chickweed. It took us forever to find the chickweed, but it was like right next to the house when we got back from our, you know, walking two miles looking for it. Um, and then we had... Um, uh, ribwort plantain and daisies and 
something else um, yesterday. So yeah, we've been trying to like um, learn a new plant. I mean, I'm learning from scratch. I don't know anything. So uh, we're just trying to learn one plant a day. And, and this is Birmingham of all places. This is happening. Birmingham. Yeah. Birmingham. Don't know anything about plants. There's no hope for them. They aren't going to be able to build a foraging culture, <laughs> right? See, that's it. That's it. Well, do you know the part of the thing that's made it possible? Oh no, we know you can always make. Well, can you always make things possible? We're in lockdown. Um, I've got a son and a daughter. My daughter is six, and she's able to go back to school because year one or whatever she's in are, are able to go back to school but year five which my son is in they're not allowed to go back yet because they're doing it all in stages mm. um so i'm i'm homeschooling um um because i'm uh, the, the one inclined towards that kind of thing um in the mornings for like two or three hours um uh, but i don't really want to do the syllabus because i find it a bit dull um, so I'm sort of, you know, homeschooling is just foraging, which just affords us the opportunity to spend two hours on, you know, most weekdays wandering around looking for things and comparing it with photos on my phone to see if it's the right thing or if it's something else. Um, and I think that's what's made it possible. You just, you, you need, uh, or if I needed time that was regular uh, and I needed somebody else to do it with, even if it was somebody else who also didn't know anything. Um, those, those are the elements. So lockdowns kind of made it possible. I think I would have struggled to do it um, if I was just doing it, you know, on the weekend, once a week or something. Well, you can put a lot of stuff in an omelet. Mm. They don't have, I mean, realize that if your kids go with you and they do it, they're going to remember that forever. I can still remember trips with my grandpa. Okay. It's, it just takes a moment. You won't know what the moment is. <laughs> he, my grandpa didn't know what the moment was, but he knew there was going to be moments when something was going to click with me, right? With my brothers. And uh, he just made us do it. Just take, took us out, took us out. So something i mean it could be that you're you went with your son or with both your son and your daughter when you went uh just my son because my daughter is back at school well don't leave out the daughter um basically if they learn something um and they know something other people don't know they're going to want to tell other people about it if they don't think it's weird right so if you just treat it like it's just a regular old thing or it's something that you got to do. Hey, we need this ingredient for our food, right? And you go get it, and then you work on it. And then they'll, they will take because you have no idea what they're going to. I mean, my grandfather never thought of panna cotta, for God's sakes. <laughs> panna cotta for cactus? Come on. Um, but here I am doing stuff. Uh, like that and that then turns on these chefs and that turns on, on these other people who say well I could do XYZ that he didn't do right um, and it travels like that you know out from the center it, it always but you just got to have that center so if there's you and there's other center does your wife go with you at all 
Um, uh, no. Does she not want to? <laughs> Does she think it's bizarre? Or, or has she tasted something that she really liked? I yeah, mean, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, uh, go out and get some violets and, and get some get some stuff with unusual flavors that that people notice and they go, what is that? What is that flavor, right? And um, I don't know. It it could be. Um, maybe you can buy some of that stuff. I mean, everybody likes violet flavored candy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you can buy that at any, any uh, drugstore, a violet, those little lozenges that have violets in them. Well, okay, here's the actual violet. <laughs> Let's see what we can do with this, right? Um, you guys, you've got all, um, I, I, I wrote it down and I forgot. Um, there's an organization in England now that is rebuilding all of those little lakes that have the cattails, AKA reed mace. <laughs> you could get a hold of them. You could go out with a crew of people where, uh, where a little, it has a name over there, um, a little pond used to be. Uh, there used to be millions of them, I guess. They used to be everywhere. Almost every farmer had some trouble filling in a, a little pond that had all the reed mace and, and uh, we should tell David what we're talking about here. So, so reed mace is, is a thing with uh, big starchy roots. It has a flower. It's the thing, it's the thing you see in floral arrangements. It looks like a big cigar, a big brown thing on a, on a stalk. You, you'd know it if you saw it, reed mace or bulrush. And, That's scary. What I just, oh, I know, yeah. like a bulrush. Yeah. Yeah. What I just heard is scary. The only way somebody's going to know what it is is if it's in a flower arrangement. Oh my god! <laughs> it's known for. That's what it's used for in England. It's the only thing it's used for. It's food. It's in a flower arrangement. Yeah. It's almost every part of it is food, and in apparently, uh, it grows everywhere over there. If it just has a little bit of water, and I guess that's how every farm used to have its little bit of water. And they... I mean, when you describe. What, what you've done in terms of the meals that you put on and the, and the, the things you've done connecting up with neighbors and dropping around trees. It's, are, you just, um, are you just an oddly beautiful human doing what comes naturally to you? Or, or do you have some kind of underlying philosophical spirituality <laughs> that compels you towards sort of radical oh, acts of healing the world? A weirdo. <laughs> No, I, uh, I'm tired of not being able to get the food that I want, that I grew up eating, uh, that used to actually be available in the grocery stores here up until about 2004. That's the last time I can remember seeing some of these foods in the grocery store here. Uh, I mean, these are things that have been traditional uh, not just native foods, but Latino foods. Um, so you would go to the grocery store and you could buy it or you could grow it in your yard. And almost everybody had gardens where they grew this stuff. Um, and I, I just got kind of shocked a few years back at, you know, go to the store and you can't find these things. What, what happened? 
where they they just disappeared and then you ask the people who work at the stores and they don't know what you're talking about anymore and you think okay this is weird this is like a whole a whole uh, pantry has disappeared in just a couple of years this this is not real this is what's going on um I go down to Baja and everybody's like, well, no, of course it's right there. It's, it's, it's regular food. And then I come back here and I'm like, where, right? Where did it go? And uh, so much so that when I did a, a, uh, a cook, a cooking of a, uh, an agave plant, a century plant, um, the newspaper thought that that was something newsworthy. And I'm like, um, <laughs> this is food. <laughs> Get away. It's, it's um, so probably it's partly my reaction uh, to that. And then it, it's just, these are my neighbor. I want my neighborhood to be nice. I want my, so we helped them plant trees. So we, you know, we garden with some of them. So we do neighborly stuff. Uh, and I guess it's a big part of me, but I don't, I don't consider it giving people things unusual, I guess. Um, Native people like to be generous. That's the most, that's, that was probably the hardest thing for for a lot of the native groups was they were they were beggared and impoverished to the point where they couldn't be generous with each other uh with other people and i mean when i talked to the the gila river people the the very first thing that they did when they got water back was they grew crops and anybody to come anybody that was thousands of people who came um, because they wanted to show off, you know, their food and, and please enjoy this food and please take this food and, oh, you haven't eaten enough and all of this kind of stuff. And I think maybe that's a, but I don't, I, in our neighborhood, that's not an unusual thing. Uh, those guys from Egypt are the same way. It's like, well, you have stuff, <laughs> eat, 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 eat. Um, and, uh, so I don't know that it's particularly unusual what I've done. I don't think so anyway. Um, there are a lot of people around me that do the same thing. So maybe that makes it easier. Uh, I suppose if I just lived by myself and I never talked to anybody, then that would be, that would be a very unusual thing to go out and, but you got to know your neighbors. What happens if you have a crisis? What happens if there's an emergency? You have to know your neighbors, right? They're the ones that are, your family is far away. Maybe they can't help you, right? You got to know your neighbors. Yeah, well, there's knowing your neighbors and then there's putting on um, meals for 200 people every two months. It didn't start like that. <laughs> it didn't. It's, it's just sort of gotten out of control. We're, we got to scale back. But, um, but anyway, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't think people are that different from me. As long as people are not afraid, I think they will be generous and nice. That's sort of my 
my rationale, my, you know, as I walk through life, the, the, if I'm lost, I ask for help, I'm, you know, so right now you guys are lost. So you're asking me for help. <laughs> England doesn't, can't find its way, even though it's got all that damn reed mace, they could be eaten like crazy. Good Lord, people, quit making flower arrangements and start eating food. It's <laughs> Well, you've, you've given us you've given us one one thing to work on, I think, and that is that you need a center. I think that's that's what I'm taking away from. There you go. That's what the, the Chinese the Chinese say. Everything starts from a moving center, right? That's the basis of Tai Chi and the basis of all. It's a moving center. So that's you just got to get your center and don't worry about the edges, right? Can't worry about all of that stuff center and start start working it so read mace that's the answer <laughs> read mace <laughs> i'm going to come over there and i'm going to start the read mace party So thanks for joining us for this week's World Wild Podcast. I do want to mention the Eat Wild zine, which is coming out for its second, yeah, so the second edition is coming out, second issue, July, that'll be out in a few days' time. And just to say, you can read the digital version, and we'll put the link on the podcast page at forager.org.uk forward slash podcast, but the Eat Wild zine, um, if you want to go straight to the link, from the sound of my voice, it's www.eatwild.org.uk. Um, and you can read the digital version there. You can also click the, the uh, support or subscribe button and we'll send it out to you every month. You can also help us find a vendor or you may be a potential vendor yourself. So the idea with this zine is we're going to sell it to people that can and want to, um, to uh, pay for it. And that means we can print more copies and give it away to things like food banks, um, people working with uh, homeless people, that kind of thing, um, where people won't be able to pay. And um, we can get lots of people foraging that, 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 that can have this scene in their hands and um, be pointed to the, the, the easiest to find, the most widely 
distributed you know we choose basically what i'm trying to say is we choose the plants every month to be the ones that everyone can find wherever they are at least in the uk and in most of europe and possibly america but you know it's mainly focused on on the british isles just because that's where we are and where we know the plants but uh, do do check it out and get involved any way you can if you'd like to and also i just want to plug again very briefly if you like the podcast and love what we're doing and want to see it uh, carry on happening and maybe even expand do consider becoming a patron and and uh, click the patron button on the on the podcast page okay so the last thing i'm going to do is talk about a plant which you can go looking for this week and that plant is yarrow yarrow is just coming into flower where we are uh, so hopefully it is where 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 you are too and uh, it's a it's a it's a lovely flower it's a really strong pungent kind of herb bordering on spice i mean it's aromatic that covers herbs and spices so you can clip the uh the, the heads off now the heads um the flower heads they look a bit like something in the carrot family so if you're familiar with the carrot family those flower heads look like an umbrella but the thing is all the stems of the smaller um clusters of flowers so you've got umbels that's the big umbrella thing and then an umbel yule which is a smaller one and they're in little stalks but it really does look like an umbrella so it's got that central meeting point of all of the stems on anything from the carrot family. So you think of things like hogweed, fennel, cow parsley, and some really dangerous ones like hemlock and hemlock water dropwort, which you need to be aware of, by the way, if you're picking carrot family plants, or even thinking about picking yarrow, strictly speaking. But let me now distinguish yarrow um, and and the carrot family, which is the point I was trying to make. So there's the, the little stalks on the base of the clusters of flowers, which, which yarrow also has, like the carrot family umbels it has these dense clusters of flowers but the stalks all join the stem the main stem at slightly different points so they're not all joining together in a central point making it look like an umbrella and that's how you tell the difference between yarrow and members of the carrot family and you also will find these feathery little leaves growing up the side um but i suppose i should add you know, this description I'm making through an audio medium is no substitute for, for you uh, getting a wild plant book and, and getting out there and identify it. I can't uh, help you beyond a certain point with that, but uh, assuming you've got your yarrow, what are you going to do with it? Well, snip off the flower head and you can make a lovely fresh tea with that. You can also dry it and, and have a stock for teas and all the other things I'm going to mention now. So yarrow has a flavor, a little bit like lavender, and aroma a little bit like lavender, and also a little bit like rosemary. So you can basically use it instead of rosemary in your cooking. And the handy thing about having this densely uh, clustered flower head on quite a, quite a firm stalk, stem rather, is you can just put that in your cooking. So if you're making a soup um, or a sauce, you can just put it in there to, to infuse the flavor and take it out like you would a sort of little spice bag. However, you might wanna keep the whole pieces in, in which case chop it up quite finely because they're, they're quite uh, solid the flowers and um let me think what else would you do yes you so you can make a syrup you can make a syrup out of um yarrow as well that makes a, a refreshing uh drink or sorbets or you can make ice cream now i personally think that yarrow syrup flavored ice cream tastes a little bit like chocolate so if, if you ever if you ever do that uh maybe let me know what you think the flavor's like but i think it's a little bit like chocolate okay well that's it for this week's worldwide podcast 